You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. This morning's reading is from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thanks. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. So a few weeks ago, or last week, not a few weeks ago, one week ago, we started a new study through the Gospel of John. And so we continue through that today. And I want to set the tone for this message by reading uh, just a short testimonial of, of somebody who gave their life to Jesus, uh, David Brooks. He's a writer for the New York Times, and he grew up Jewish, uh, pretty secular for a long time until later in his life. But then he started investigating Christianity, started questioning Jesus and finding answers. And this is what he says in his most recent book. He says, that summer... I took my annual walk up to American Lake, which is at the top of the mountain near Aspen, Colorado. I was in a spiritual frame of mind that morning, and on the hike up the mountain, I composed a list of all the things I would have to give up to God if he actually existed. My work, my reputation, my friendships, my life, my loves, my family, my vices, my bank accounts. I reached the lake sat on a rock and pulled out a book of Puritan prayers that I brought. Most of them were grim affairs about human depravity and all that. Then I came upon one called the Valley of Vision. The first line is, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. And I looked at the spare and majestic mountain peaks in front of me. Just then a little brown creature who looked like a badger waddled up to the lake and not noticing me. He came within two feet of my sneaker before looking up, startled and scrambling away. High and holy, meek and lowly. The next sentence is, thou hast brought me into the valley of vision. Well, there I was in the bowl formed around the lake. Then I kept on reading, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. I was in all sorts of depths, but could see mountaintops. It continues, hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. The rest of the text summarizes the whole inverse logic of faith. The broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. Life in my death, joy in my sorrow, grace in my riches, in my sin, riches in my poverty, glory in my valley. He writes, I had a sensation of things clicking into place, like the sound of a really nice car door gently closing. I wrote an account that day, God really does tailor himself to you. For those of us with a sense of not belonging, of being sojourners, he gives membership, acceptance, and participation. And the hike down took about an hour and a half and was marked by giddiness. And that day is the day that David broke it clicked for him, where he received Jesus. He believed and received, and his life was changed thereafter. Some receive Jesus because it clicks. Some, though, reject Jesus. And why is that? 
Why is that? Why does a man like David Brooks, who, of all people, you wouldn't think would need Jesus, he has it all, fame, celebrity, success, money, yet he receives Jesus, and there are many who don't. So why is that? And that's what I want to investigate today. That's really what these verses are about, these next seven verses are about, is why some receive Jesus and why some reject Jesus. This is really meditation on these ideas. So there are two points. First, why some reject Jesus, and secondly, why some receive Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to teach us. So Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us, God, to understand who your son is and understand what the life we can have in him is. God, I pray that you would open our minds to not only understand your word, but open up our minds to understand ourselves, to see where we are falling short, to see where we are not receiving you, to see where we are not, where we, where we are holding back from you. And so, God, I pray that today would be a great encouragement uh, and great teaching and great direction and, and, and conviction, Lord, to lead us in the right way into fullness of life, into the true light, which is your Son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so why do some reject Jesus? Why is that? Look at verse 9. We'll jump to verse 9 with me. It says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So Jesus is the true light. He is the very revelation of God, the manifestation of God. If you want to know who God is, you look no further than Jesus. He's the very radiance of God, and it says here that he has entered into the world. So Jesus leaves the transcendent and comes to us, comes to the dirt, and enters the world. John writes here in verse 9, enters the world. Now, you have to understand, in the book of John, when you see the word world, it's kind of a, there's a negative connotation with that word. It means more than just the place that God has created. Really, the connotation or that word, what it's loaded with, is it's, it's a place of darkness. It's a place of lostness. It's a place where we are alienated from God. So Jesus, get this, the very God of God, <laughs> comes to those who are lost. The true light enters the darkness so that we can be found so John is saying that, that those of us who are lost in darkness, that no longer needs to be the case because the true light has come to us to find us. And then he writes in verse 10, keep going. It says, he was in the world. He was present among us. And the world, it says, was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In other words, the world did not acknowledge him, recognize him. So Jesus comes to everybody, Greeks included here, this kind of general idea of all people who are lost and yet they did not acknowledge him. They did not uh, um, recognize him for who he is. Then we keep going in verse 11. It says this, he came to his own, so that's the Jews, the Jewish people, the covenant people, and it says his own people did not receive him. So the Jewish people who've been waiting for hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years for hope, for Messiah, for salvation, for a great and new exodus, they were waiting for this true light to break into the darkness and bring about a new dawn, and they did not receive him. Rejected by Greeks, rejected by Jews, rejected by all, rejected by the darkness. So now the question is why? And we're not given the answer here exactly. Um, this is just an introductory to the whole book of John, and there's many ways we can go. There's a lot of ways you can answer that question. Why do some people reject Jesus? But this invites us to meditate on this truth and think biblically about this. Why do some miss out on the true light? So here's how I answer it, at least for today. If you were to read the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, a number of times in each of those Gospels, Jesus repeats this very strange phrase over and over after he teaches. He says, 
He who has ears to to hear, let him hear. He says it over and over again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you read that phrase and you think to yourself, well, of course, everybody can hear them, right? What does this mean? What does Jesus mean by this strange remark? And what Jesus is actually doing is he is referring to an Old Testament idea. Let me show it to you in Psalm 115. It says this. I've read this before. I think this is a really important verse, um, but it's, it's in Psalm 115. It says this, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Look what it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feel feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. And look here, this is interesting. This is the climax of the whole idea here. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What that means is what you worship will have an effect on you. You become what you worship, what you invest your hope in, what you invest your security in, what you invest your significance in, your salvation, right? All these existential terms, they fall underneath the umbrella of our salvation, okay? We want to be saved, What we look to for our salvation is going to have an effect on us. Let me say it another way. Whatever you are consumed by and investing your hope in, whatever power it has, whatever life it has, whatever vitality it has, or lack thereof, is going to be conferred to you. It's going to reshape you. It's going to either build you up and give you and and do something incredible in you, or it's going to distort you. So this psalm is saying what you look to to worship for that salvation is going to have a direct and consequential relationship with you. It's going to change who you are. And here it says for the worse. You know, these idols, they're dead. So what's going to happen to us if we worship idols? We will be deadened. We will be desensitized. We will be dehumanized. We will grow numb. So this Psalm 115 talks about other nations. Other nations do this. Other nations worship idols, and for it, they became desensitized, dehumanized. But it's interesting, as we keep on reading through the Old Testament, this same language is applied to Israel, the Jews. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah, this is him speaking. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And look what it says. He says, Go and say to this people, to the covenant people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, then blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What God is is telling Isaiah to do is go preach to Israel, to the covenant people, and then he gives, he states their condition, their spiritual condition. He tells them, the more you preach, Isaiah, the more you plead with them to turn from their ways, the more hardened they're going to get. The more entrenched in their rejection, the more desensitized they will become. And why is that? Because they're holding on to their idols because they're holding on to a different source of hope. So see, the same idea about those those other nations who worship idols, they become desensitized and dehumanized. God says the same exact thing is happening to his covenant people. They have ears, but don't hear. They have eyes, but don't perceive. They have minds, but don't understand. So Jesus comes along years later and says, he who has ears, let him hear. What he's saying is, you're only going to be able to hear me. 
and understand me and take in what I'm saying if you have let go and released your idols. Otherwise, you're just becoming more and more and more entrenched, entrenched, entrenched in your idolatry and more and more desensitized to the true hope, the true light, which has come into the world. And let me say this, the more and more and more entrenched we get, the more we hold on to those idols, you know, we resist, we resist the true light who's come into the world. Uh, it becomes harder and harder and harder then to turn to Jesus. It becomes harder and harder and harder. We almost be, get reprogrammed to need these things. And we dig our heels into the ground and take root into these false sources of hope. So why do some reject Jesus? Well, for the Jews here, what's very clear is that they wanted a Messiah who would bring glory. You know, a restoration of the old days, of the glory days of, of David's kingdom. They didn't want a crucified, a suffering, a meek and lowly Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would get behind their national agenda, their sense of, of pride and elevation. So the Jewish people, though, you know, they hold a mirror up to all of us. They're just an example for us to to cross-reference ourselves with. And what they show us is that when we reject Jesus because we prefer the sources of trust and hope that we've already allied with, we will become more and more entrenched in our idolatry and then more spiritually desensitized because of it. So the concept of idolatry, it's, it's all over the Bible. And in fact, something interesting I read lately is that even modern psychologists right now use idolatry as this fr- as sort of a framework to, to guide people through therapy and through counseling sessions. It's like almost like what's, what's known and, and observable in our world is finally catching up to what the Bible says. And so idolatry is very complex. It's one of the ways the Bible talks about our, our rejection of Jesus, our rejection of God, our distancing ourselves from him. So how do you know? How do we know if we're committing idolatry? Like, what are we supposed to look for to know if we're holding Jesus at a distance because we prefer something else? How do we know? There's two, I think, <clears throat> two ways I think we know that we're practicing idolatry. And these things, they, if you have one, you have the other. So you only need one of these to know if you're committing idolatry. So here's the first one. You make a good thing an ultimate thing. Nothing nothing in our created world here is bad, like inherently bad. Everything that God has created is good. It was a gift for us. But here's what we have done. We've taken the gift, the good thing, and we've elevated it to the status of the giver. And we've demoted him. We've given created things, material things, people and careers, whatever you, you may choose from of the smorgasbord of options you have, we've taken those things and we've elevated them, to, elevated them to a place that only God belongs. We've made good things, ultimate things. And because of that, here's what else happens. Here's the second way you know that you're committing idolatry. You, you go from one extreme to another emotionally. You have these massive emotional swings back and forth. And the reason for that is because that idol, whether it be your career, a romantic relationship, your reputation, accolades, whatever you may, you may choose, you're investing so much of your hope, your self-esteem, your significance in those things. All that existential stuff you're loading into those things, well... <laughs> It's very easy to threaten 
those things. Those things, they're not stable. They're very, very fragile. They're not really underneath our management. They're not, they're not in our control. So many variables are at stake when we talk about whether or not my career is going well enough, whether or not my relationship's going well enough, whether or not uh, people love me enough. Like, that's, that's not something that's in our control, and so it's very fragile. And so what happens is when it's going good, oh, it's going great. It feels awesome, and everything is wonderful, and life is amazing when those fragile things feel safe. But when they're threatened, when they're, when they're starting to shift and oscillate back and forth and wobble and things are, are falling apart, oh, when it's bad, it's awful. So we go literally from great to awful, great to awful, back and forth because we have made a good thing an ultimate thing. See, good things, when, they're, they, when they remain good things, we can enjoy them for what they are. But when we make good things ultimate things, listen here, I, I, help me explain this, Lord. When we make good things ultimate things, we place a burden of expectation on those things that they were never, ever created to carry. It's not possible for people, occupations, <clears throat> experiences, or things, these created things, it's not possible for them to be God for you. They were not built for it. It's not... They, they're not created to carry the weight of your desperate heart's expectations. So it won't work. So when it's going great, it's going to be awesome. And when it's faulty and falling apart, it's going to be awful. Back and forth, back and forth, because we make good things ultimate things. This is how we know we have idols in our life, that we've collected idols in our life. And the more you prefer that idol, and the more you choose that idol, the more entrenched you become in idolatry, and the more entrenched you become in idolatry, the harder it is to listen to Jesus, the harder it is to respond, because you prefer and prefer and prefer these other sources of hope. Now listen, I know I'm talking to a room mainly full of Christians here, so let me just say this. It's very possible to make very Christian things idols. It is. Seemingly good things, idols. It is very possible to do that. Let me give you an example. Mine. You know what my main idol is? I have like probably a million of them. But you know what my main one is? The success of this church. And so for the last five years, I can, I can see all those swings back and forth, back and forth in my life where it's going great. Oh, amazing. And I enjoy something that's very temporary to a measure that is inappropriate. And then when things aren't going well or things feel faulty or there's cracks showing, oh my goodness, I'm just depressed and anxious because I make a good thing an ultimate thing. And the, the, bad, the, the sad thing about that is so many good things have happened over the last five years that I have not enjoyed as much. I've not enjoyed the measure I should have because I was so preoccupied by other things that were less important. That's what idolatry will do to you. It will rob you of joy. It will steal from you the good things from the hand of the Father. So as long as you prefer your idol, you're going to miss out on the true light who's coming into the world. But here's the thing, all right? Jesus, he's better than our idols. Far superior to our idols. So now my job is to convince you of this, to show you from John chapter 1 here that Jesus is the better choice that he is better than your idols. Prefer him, not other things or people. So let's go ahead and see this in, in, in three ways, okay? First, Jesus is better than idols because of who he is and because of whose we are and because of what he's done. 
It's those three ideas that are going to guide us and persuade us, argue to our own hearts that Jesus is actually better, who he is, whose we are, what he's done. So look, at me, look with me at verse 12. It says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this is because of who he is. Who all, received, who, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, his name. Underline that if you like to underline things. So in our Western culture, we don't, we don't attribute much significance to names. You know, names are just chosen because they sound cool and because they're, there's a fad or trendy, whatever it may be. But back in, in biblical times, in, in Eastern times, names, a name that is given to you is a huge deal. It, it, was, it was who you'd become. It was your destiny. It really defined you. It captured who you are to your very essence. So you have the Abraham, right? Father of many nations. That was the destiny. That was his destiny. All right, so Jesus it says here uh, that we are to believe in his name. It doesn't give Jesus his name. It just says his name. So that's the focus here is, is the name of Jesus. Now, let me tell you something interesting about the name of Jesus. And I don't know if you ever knew this before. Uh, what we have uh, here in our New Testaments is a English translation of the Greek. So the word Jesus is a translation from the Greek of Jesus. But in biblical times, of course, amongst the Jewish people, they spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. So we have an English translation of Greek, which is translated from Hebrew. Do you know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is? The original, original language? It's Joshua. Jesus is, that his name means Joshua in the most original language. That's really significant. I mean, it wasn't Mary and Joseph's idea to call him Jesus. The angel Gabriel told them to do that. Why would God do that? Why would God give Christ the name Joshua? It's very significant. And here's why. Because Joshua, the former Joshua, led the people into the promised land. He was the champion of their salvation. The original Joshua was. So Jesus here, now we have a new and better Joshua. He will lead his people into the true promised land, into the true rest, into the true and full salvation. And so here's Jesus, the new Joshua, who's going to do something that Joshua couldn't even do, which is bring about real salvation. And this point is actually reinforced even more up in verses 6 through 8. Look there with me where it talks about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, and his job, his, his calling in his life was to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is sort of this Old Testament prophet who's cut up like at the beginning of a new era. He's almost like the, the, um, the bridge between two eras that, that he's, he's, uh, coming, he's bringing together. So here's what it says in verses 6 through 8. There's a man who is sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light that came to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist is, has come to prepare others for Jesus' ministry. But the description here where it says that John was sent from God, do you know who else is given that description a number of times in the Old Testament? Moses. Moses, a number of times, is, is told, we are told, he is sent from God, sent from God, sent from God. So it's almost like John, who's not John the Baptist, this John who's writing, the disciple, the apostle John, the beloved. Uh, it's almost like he, he's tipping his hat 
suggesting something, but not quite coming out and saying it. But what he's saying is that Jesus truly is the new and better Joshua. Look no further than John the Baptist's ministry, because like Moses, who prepared the way for Joshua to bring about the promised land salvation, now John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, who's going to bring about the true full salvation, the true and better promised land. See this? See the parallels? See how it corresponds? So, the name of Jesus. Why should you turn from idol and turn to Jesus? You won't find a better name. I mean, his name is the climax of all of history. His name is, is the climax of literally the whole entire salvation story of the Old Testament. You won't find a better name to trust in. So my question for you now is whose name are you putting your trust in? Your own? You trusting your own name? trusting in someone else's name, the name of your reputation, the name of the company you work for? What name are you trusting right now? Because John is out to persuade us to trust in the name of Jesus by showing us that he is the fullest and final salvation that we will ever find. And this is pretty radical to say that Jesus is the true and better promised land, that he is the true and better Joshua. It's a pretty radical thing to say because for the Jewish people, like the promised land, that's, that's their benchmark for salvation. That's the hallmark idea of what it means to be uh, for security and comfort and peace. And here we find out that that's only a shadow. That's only a shadow of the greater work that Jesus is going to bring about. So turn from idols. Why? Because of who he is. Because of his name. Secondly, Turn from idols because of whose you are. If you turn to Jesus, you, you, you are in the possession now of someone. Look at, with, with me at verse 12. It says in there that for those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. Now, since uh, becoming a parent, reading phrases like this, just, it just hits me differently now. Because my children, they light up my world. When they smile, I smile. When they laugh, I laugh. When they cry, I want to cry. Uh, but, you know, my heartstrings, they're like forever attached to these little girls now. And their happiness is my happiness. If you talk to parents who have older kids, they'll tell you that their happiness is only as great as their unhappiest child. See, a parent, their heartstrings are forever connected to their children. And here it says that we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we become children of God. Now, let me go ahead and remind you of the parable of the prodigal son that we read earlier. That the, let me summarize the story. Here's a son who tells his father that I no longer want anything to do with you. He absolutely rejects the father, walks away from him, comes to his senses, hit rock, hits rock bottom, comes back and says, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'll just be a hired, uh, hired laborer for my father just on his, on his um, property somewhere. I won't even be a son anymore. But the father says, what's he doing? He's waiting and he's looking. And when he sees his son down the dirt pathway, long, far away, his compassion is stirred. His heart is gripped in that moment, and he makes a beeline for his son before the, word, before the son can even try to make a deal. The father showers him with kisses. The father puts a ring on his finger. The father puts that robe over him. He brings him home and celebrates his homecoming. We have a prodigal son who left home who is alienated from the father, who the father brings back. Now, the story, we didn't read it, but in the story, you know, there's another son. There's an older brother, an elder brother, and he 
is all, he's grumpy, he's angry, he's bitter that the son came home and the father celebrated him, you know, killed the fattened calf for him, gave him the ring, the robe, all these things. The elder brother just is fuming about it. And do you know why? It's because all that stuff is the brother's. <laughs> See, the younger son already left. The, the, his share of the inheritance was liquidated and given to him. And now everything that's on the property, it's the elder brother's. And now the father's giving it away to the, old, to the younger brother to bring him home, to celebrate him. That's all his stuff. So what we have is an elder brother who's alienated from the father as well and who's not pleased to give away his stuff to, to, to um, do whatever it takes to bring home this, this lost son. But the point of the parable of the prodigal son is that we need a true older brother. We need that ideal older brother who will spare no expense, who will do whatever it takes, even at cost of himself, to go and find and reconcile lost younger brothers. So in Jesus, we have the true and ideal older brother who has spared no expense, not he left his glory, he left his comfort, he left a place of privilege and love in the heavenlies and came to the dirt, into the world, into the darkness to seek and save the lost. So why? So we could become children of God. So now we're reconciled and now we're brought home and we're adopted by a father who's like our hearts, <laughs> whose heart strings are attached to us forever, who dances over us with singing, who delights in us like his children. Now here's why this is pivotal, that God is now your father, my father. This is so significant. Uh, maybe a year ago I was listening to a podcast of a pastor who was talking and here's what he says about fathers and why fatherhood is so important. He says, God is revealed as our great father. And when you think about the archetypal father, of what a father is supposed to be, he's supposed to bless, he's supposed to provide for you, he's supposed to protect you, he's supposed to reinforce that you're wanted. He's supposed to create psychological safety. When you remove that reference point, you create a society of unblessed people striving for approval and competing with one another. We are designed for an archetypal, primal, loving blessing, and we struggle without it. We are designed for a perfect and great Father. And now, through our older brother Jesus, who has come to the world, we are now reconciled with our Father, whose heart is now attached to ours. You know, nothing fills us with more stability, more um, reassurance, than when our fathers say, I'm proud of you. When our fathers say, you're beautiful, when our fathers, you know, many of you ladies are going to walk down the aisle one day and your fathers are going to look at you and say, you look beautiful today. Those kinds of times and those words, they just mean everything to us. It fills us with something. And so here is the ultimate father, who every single father, you know, comes stems from. Fatherhood was his idea. It's modeled after him. Here is our ultimate father, who now says this to you, who shouts from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, who tells you this, I pledge to you my heart, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I will always come after you, that I will not abandon you, that you are mine forever. Jesus is better than idols, because idols can't touch that. <laughs> Don't even come close to that. Whose are we? Well, if we choose an idol, 
we're somebody's for a time, and then we have to move on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. But if we're the Father's, we're His forever. So we choose idols, or choose not idols, we choose God the Father because of who He is and because of whose we are. But lastly here, because of what He's done. So look at verse 13 again with me. It says this, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And when you read that, you should feel a release that my my union with Jesus and the Father's love for me, it's not something I can work for and strive after and prove and measure up and perform for. And it's not given on the basis of performance, of moral performance or of striving. It's not given on the basis of heritage, it says here. It's not on the basis of flesh or the will of man or the blood It's on the basis of what? Kindness, grace, freely given alone. And so notice here, it says that uh, we were born, born not of these things, but of God. In the previous uh, phrase in verse 12, it says that we have uh, become children of God, and now it says we're born. So these, these two ideas are meant to be connected to each other. When, this is so powerful, when we become adopted by God our Father, because of Jesus Christ, it's like we're born again. It's like we are given a new life. And we'll see that in John chapter 3. We throw around this phrase a lot, we're born again, born again. If you grew up in church at all, you've heard that your entire life. But I'm afraid we've become so familiar with that phrase that's lost its effect on us. To be born again means clean slate, new, forgiven and forgotten. That's what being born again means. It's a fresh, new start. Now, here's, and that's pretty powerful, that in Jesus, all the former things are forgotten, and you are a new creation, a new man, a new woman. It gets even better, though, because you'll notice in verse 12, go back there with me, it says that we are given the right to become children of God. This adoption, it's by grace. Being born again, it's by grace. But when that occurs, that status as God's child becomes our right. Like our birthright. I'll put it in the most strongest words I know. We're entitled to it. By God's grace, now we're entitled to God. Now think about this. The busiest most unaccessible person in the entire world is the, is the President of the United States. You have to line things up, I'm sure, months in advance. You have to clear security protocol to get time with him, to get FaceTime with him. But do you know who has to not jump through any hoops? Who has access to the Oval Office whenever they please? It's his kid. That's our reality. That when we're united by faith to Jesus and adopted into God's family and born again, given a new life, we have the right to Him now. We're entitled to Him now. We belong with Him now. And it's not because of us. It's not because we've earned anything. It's a free gift. Now, here's what's so, um, I think why this is so hard for us to connect. If somebody gives us a lavish, free gift that's this amazing, we don't want to presume on it. 
right? We don't, we want to like use it in good measure, not take advantage of it too much because it's, they've already gone so much out of their way to help us already. So I don't want to just, you know, uh, go crazy with that thing. I want to be, you know, measured and I want to be tame with it. That's not right. We don't approach God, our Father, holding our hat with our head down, approaching Him sheepishly. We are summoned and expected to approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace whenever we need it because we are His kids and He loves us. And the elder brother has come to seek and save us and He has now reconciled us and spared no expense to celebrate our homecoming. So here's your options now, okay? You can perform and strive and achieve all to be accepted by your peers, all to be accepted by yourself, or you can trust in Christ once for all, that his perfection was enough and be accepted by the Father today, tomorrow, the next day, no matter what, because you are born again, new life, clean slate, and you are entitled to now his presence through Christ. So, I hope I have persuaded, I hope John has persuaded us that Jesus is better than the things that we settle for and that destroy us ultimately, our idols. But I want you to notice one last thing here in verse 12. It says, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So receive and believe, receive and believe. These two ideas, you know, they're, it's almost like receiving in other words, Another way to describe receiving is to say believe. Okay. This all hinges upon receiving and believing in Jesus. So let me have your attention for those of you who are, you know, if you aren't a Christian, or if you consider you're, you're searching and you're questioning the claims of Christianity, let me go ahead and encourage you with something right now. I remember um, speaking with a friend recently over lunch, and he, he's not a believer, he's, he's skeptical, questioning, searching. And he said, look, if God was real, if this is all real, why doesn't God just make it absolutely 100% clear? Why doesn't God make it just, absolutely, just undeniable that this is all legitimate? And I responded and said, well, let me ask you this. All the commitments in your life, commitment to you know, your girlfriend, commitment to your career, commitment to whatever it may be, uh, do you hold that same criteria for all those decisions? Like, do you, to, to marry somebody, to, to take that job opportunity, to start a new path in life, whatever it may be, do you um, need complete, full, and total evidence, 100% certainty that it's going to be okay, that everything is okay before you make that commitment? He said, no, well, no. I said, right, you, you make, we make decisions on the basis of what? Sufficient evidence. What, it, what this suggests what, what seems to be enough, not complete and total and final. So here in this situa- situation, my friend, I think what's very common is this, you know, we don't hold God to the same criteria that we hold everything else in our life, all the other commitments in our life. We have this double standard with God where we don't expect full and total 100% certainty of everything else over here, but we do with God. What does that show? If you're here and you're questioning, you're seeking, what does that show? What that shows is it's not really about being convinced. It's about preference. 
because you're looking for a way to justify holding on to everything else over here because you know this one decision, this one commitment over here is just going to mess it all up. And so you place this impossible bar on Jesus that even if he met, it wouldn't be enough for you because your heart's not really in it because that's not really what you want. You want these things over here. But these things over here are going to rob you. And they're going to sell, (laughs) they are going to fall short of the weight of your expectations. They can't save you. They can't be your salvation. Now, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, which is most of you, when we receive Jesus and believe that first moment, we're saved and we are guaranteed, like we, we will not lose. He will not lose us. So I don't, want to make, I don't want you to be mistaken when I say this, but still, you have to make a daily conscious choice to receive and believe Jesus, not because you're losing your salvation, but because you're losing intimacy, but because you're losing connection, not from God. He's not distancing himself from you, but you're getting busy and you're getting preoccupied and you're distancing your heart from him. He's opened up the Father's heart to you and inviting you into it at any time you you want. You, follower of Jesus, have to receive and believe every single day. You know, having a good marriage, what does that take? It's not rocket science. It takes intentionality. That's it. If we just wrap it up in one word, it takes intentionality. You know, the most important things in life, like a great marriage, easy in concept, hard to do. It's the same thing with a rich and vibrant walk with God. Easy in concept, hard to do receive, and believe every single day. That's what John, as we keep on studying it, is going to sell us on. Sell us on over and over that fullness of life is only found in Jesus. But listen, fullness of life, it's on the other side of turning from idols and committing to Jesus. Not on the basis of impossible standards, but on the basis of what has he already shown you. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us release idols, rid ourselves of idols, move on from them, and find our life in you. You, Jesus, are fullness of life. You are our source of joy and hope. And so I pray, God, that we would be moved to you, uh, moved closer to you today, and that you do great work in our lives. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.